Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 4? In case you're wondering, I can't see how that's possible. In case you're wondering where we are, we announce it every week in our study of Romans. that We're in currently the second major section of the book, a section dealing with the doctrine of justification. And in this section, Paul is basically telling us how fallen sinners can be made righteous, can be justified, or in other words, how we as fallen sinners can have fellowship with a holy and righteous God, have fellowship now on this earth and be accepted by him someday in heaven. So in verses 21 to 31 of chapter 3, Paul introduces to his readers the doctrine of justification. And now in chapter 4, he's going to illustrate justification by faith through the life of their greatest patriarch, Abraham. So, verse 1, What then shall we say, that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, as we said last time, Jewish pride concerning Abraham was based on the belief that he was justified, made righteous, or declared to be right with God by his works. By his works. The Jews believed that Abraham was sinless before God, that he kept the law perfectly even 500 years before the law was given to Moses. How did he do that? Well, he did it intuitively, the rabbis taught. He just knew it. It was just in his heart, and he knew exactly how to live the law, and he was completely faithful, never broke the law once. And the rabbis taught that this was why God chose him to be the father of the Jewish nation, because he was an absolutely righteous man. He deserved it. He was worthy. But Paul is arguing that if Abraham was justified by work, well, then he would have something to boast about. But that's not what the Jewish scriptures have to say with regard to Abraham's righteousness. Now, this baffles me. The rabbis had this, their scriptures. They knew what Genesis said, right? So how is it that they came away with such a totally different interpretation of Abraham's righteousness. The only thing I can figure out is they were going more by their feelings than by the written word. I was listening to a pastor the other day, and he said that uh, years earlier, he had to, uh, had to confront a young woman who was coming to his church uh, because he found out she was living with her boyfriend. So he calls her in, and she, and she readily admitted that they were in a physical relationship with each other. And he said to her, he said, well, you know that's wrong, that's sin. I mean, having two unmarried people having sex is fornication. God forbids that. And she said, well, that's your interpretation. So I don't feel it's wrong. And this is the problem. Too many people want to go by their feelings and not by what God's word says. I have to believe the rabbis were doing that when it came to Abraham's so-called righteousness. They, they believed he was just naturally a righteous guy from birth that he just never broke the law, and so on. And so to debunk this false teaching that Abraham was righteous because of what he did, how he lived, Paul takes them back to the place in Genesis where God originally pronounced Abraham righteous, Genesis 15, verse 6, um, which, of course, he quotes. Paul says that when Abraham places faith, quoting Genesis 15, 6, when Abraham places faith in God and his promise that God, listen, accounted it to him for righteousness. And again, the word accounted was an accounting term that dealt with a transaction taking place. In other words, 
The moment Abraham placed his faith in God, a transaction took place. God took the sin of Abraham and transferred it to Christ's account, who then paid for it on Calvary's cross, and then took the righteousness of Christ from Jesus' account and transferred it to Abraham's account, making him now righteous. Not by his own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ, which had now been imputed or accounted to him, his account. Verse 4, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Grace means a gift. God, God works for uh, a paycheck. Um, it's not a gift. He's worked for it. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And I'm re reviewing a little bit from last week. But when Paul talks about how God will justify the ungodly by faith, he's still talking about Abraham. He's still got Abraham in view, guys. As we pointed out last week, Paul is reminding his Jewish readers that Abraham, of course, back in the early days, he was known as Abram, Abram that Abram started out life as an idol-worshiping Gentile. Um, I don't know how the rabbis dealt with that truth. But Abraham started out in life as, a, as an idol-worshiping Gentile when God called him to leave the earth of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, to go to the land of promise, Canaan. Paul's point is that far from being a righteous man who was so good by his life, so good by the life he lived and the things he did in obeying God as the rabbis taught, um, that on the basis of his righteousness, he was so righteous, God declared him righteous. God just acknowledged he was already righteous. That's what the rabbis taught. Paul said, oh, no, no, uh, that's not what the scriptures teach. He said, Abraham was ungodly when God declared him righteous. And he declared him righteous not because of the things he did, but just by the faith he had. Look, we know that Abraham wasn't a perfect man. All you could do is read the account of his life in Genesis. Um, I mean, I'm not saying he was as bad as many, but he was not perfect. If you read his life in the book of Genesis, he had numerous lapses of faith and times of disobedience, and yet God still justified him. How? Well, it wasn't by his works. He wasn't good enough to be justified by his works. God justified him by his faith. And as we said last week, the rabbis had it backwards. They had it backwards. God didn't justify Abraham because he did a lot of righteous things. He did a lot of righteous things. He lived a righteous life because God had justified him, saved him. The rabbi said, Abraham was so righteous, God declared him righteous and saved him. The Bible says, no, sinners are declared righteous by their faith, and then God begins to live his life through them in the way of fruit. Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. And Paul's point, guys, is that Abraham was justified, or in other words, again, declared righteous by his faith in Genesis 15, verse 6. Listen, 35 years before he offered Isaac to the Lord in Genesis 22. There are people that want to Combine the two. It sounds like James has combined the two. We talked about that last week. That James says, look, Abraham's faith plus his works saved him. Well, no, what James is saying is Abraham's faith saved him and his works demonstrated he was saved. That's what the idea is. Now, here's something interesting. Paul now at this point turns to David, another hero of the Jewish faith, and a man who was born after, Abraham was born before the law of Moses was given, David was born after the law of Moses was given. And right now, Paul turns to David to show that David in Psalm 32, which was written after his sin with Bathsheba, that David in Psalm 32 was affirming 
the doctrine of justification. Look at verse 6 of Romans 4. Just as David also de describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, verse 7, blessed are those whose, law whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now, you're wondering at this point, because we all know David from Scripture, some might be thinking, why would Paul turn to David to make his point? I mean, I mean, David was a deeply flawed individual. So why use him to illustrate the doctrine of justification by faith? Why? Because he was a deeply flawed individual. And Paul's point is that only a deeply flawed, sinful people can be justified by faith. Because if they could be good enough to earn heaven, they wouldn't need justification by faith. Salvation would be based on their works. But by the works of the law, Paul goes on to say, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And we've talked about that before. We'll no doubt talk about it again. But here's the deal. Yeah, David was a flawed individual. But sinful, flawed people are the only ones who need justification by faith. In other words, everybody. Everybody. But Paul also turns to David to make his point, in part because he knew how much his Jewish readers loved David. How much they loved David. He was at the heart of every institution that the Jews held dear. One author put it this way, speaking of David in the present tense. He said, David is their shepherd boy, the representative of all the toiling classes. He is her musician, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the nation's worship leader. He is Israel's greatest warrior. The conqueror of Goliath is the symbol of their greatest enemies. He is her king, the great monarch ruling over the nation with great majesty. He is her priest, substituting a broken and contrite spirit for the blood of bulls and rams. And he is her prophet, speaking forth the words of God to the nation, end quote. Uh, guys, David represented the, represented the heart and soul of the nation of Israel. He was Israel's golden boy, as someone has said. And I'll go this far. I think he was the E.F. Hutton of Israel. When he spoke, people listened because they had such respect for David. But look, as great as David was, and don't confuse greatness with perfection. They don't go together. David was great. He was not perfect by any means. But as great as David was, he broke at least three of the Ten Commandments. He coveted Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her, and he murdered Uriah, her husband, to cover his sin, all in one episode of his life. One episode. Guys, the law made no provision for premeditated sin. And all, all three of David's sins were premeditated. So David was guilty. With no hope, there was no loopholes he could take advantage of. Uh, no temporary insanity plea he could use. Uh, these go back a few years ago, and I had to take it out because I think it's dated. But he had no Twinkie defense. Remember the famous Twinkie defense of when somebody kills somebody, and uh, his or her defense was that she had, they had just eaten a bunch of Twinkies, and the sugar rush caused them to do crazy things? They dubbed it the Twinkie defense, and they got off. But he was guilty, flat out. Flat out guilty. And the punishment for these premeditated sins was death. But when God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David over his sin, David responded, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan said to him, David, the Lord has also put away your sin. 
you shall not die. It was then that David wrote Psalm 32, praising God for his mercy in not impugning or imputing David's sin to his account, which Paul quotes in Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. Let me read it to you again, but I thought I'd read it to you out of the Amplified, a little uh, fuller look at the meaning, okay? But Romans 4, verses 7 and 8 out of the Amplified, blessed and happy and, and to be envied are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered up and completely buried. Blessed and happy and to be envied is the person of whose sin the Lord will not, the Lord will take no account nor reckon it against them. And the reason God can forgive us and not impute our sins to our account is because of what Jesus did. Another paid our penalty. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God can't impute something to someone without a basis. He can't impute righteousness to somebody's account if sin had not been paid for and dealt with and taken out of the way. That's what Jesus did in Calvary's cross. And this allowed then for God to offer us salvation, justification, by our faith in Christ. In Christ. And Paul is using Abraham and David, yes, because they were heroes of the Jewish people, but also to demonstrate that through Abraham, people were saved pre-Moses through faith, and through David, God demonstrated that people were saved after Moses by faith. So Paul's saying God demonstrated this in his word. I just want to bring it to your attention. Now at this point, Paul anticipates that his Jewish readers would be thinking, you say we're saved by faith, then why did God command us to be circumcised? I mean, what was the point of circumcision if it doesn't guarantee our entrance into heaven? Now, you can see where they're coming from. If it didn't guarantee our entrance into heaven, then why did God even bother giving it to us? See, they believed, and we've touched on this, they believed that when a male child was circumcised, that placed him into the covenant that God made with Abraham and saved him. Saved him. They believed that men were made right with God through the physical act of circumcision, or in other words, salvation through surgery. That's what they believed. Acts 15, verse 1. But certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It was essential for salvation. Turn to Galatians 5. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. Galatians 5, verse 1, where Paul said, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's talking about not going back to the law. Christ has set us free. We have liberty from the law. Don't go back to it, because the Judaizers, again, were encouraging Jews and Gentiles. They had to keep the law to be saved which make it circumcised, and so on. Verse 2, Indeed I, Paul, say to you, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Look, either you're saved by grace through faith, or you're saved by law through works. You can't have it both ways. Judaizers were trying to blend the two. 
yeah, 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 believe in Jesus by faith. But before you can become a Christian, faith is involved, but you got to get first get circumcised, you men, and keep the law of Moses. And then you can exercise faith in Christ and become Christians, be saved. They tried to blend law and works. And Paul said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. You have to choose which one, all right? You're going to try to achieve your salvation through. Paul says, I know it's not going to happen through works, the law. Um, but some of you are convinced that's the way you get, you're made righteous. It didn't happen that way for Abraham, uh, and so on and so forth, right? But um, again, verse 3, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We're looking for our glorified bodies, and that can only happen through faith when the rapture comes. Uh, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Verse 7, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The truth is always, always has been, always will be under attack. It will be under attack from the father of lies, always. Who wants to muddy the waters? He'd love you to be an atheist, but he knows most folks won't be atheists because instinctively there is a desire to know God, that he exists. But if he can't get you to become an atheist, he'll lead you down the path of religion, as long as it's false religion. He doesn't care what you believe as long as you believe lies. So the truth will always be under attack Always has been, always will be, and we have to know the truth really well to be able to do, not defend the truth, but to uh, help people taken captive by Satan's lies to be set free. That's what the gospel does. I don't need to defend the truth. So a young pastor came to Spurgeon one day and said, um, how can I have more power in my preaching? How can I, you know, uh, release the power of God through my preaching? And Spurgeon said, you don't need to do anything to make the Word of God more powerful. Just proclaim it. I mean, it's like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. Just let it out of its cage. And that's the truth. We need to understand that truth is living and powerful. We just need to know it and faithfully share it. And hopefully live it because people are going to be looking at our lives to see if we really believe what we claim to believe. Are we living it ourselves? Listen, salvation through circumcision was so embedded in their thinking and so ingrained in Jewish culture that Paul had no choice but to constantly come against it in his writings. That's why you see it everywhere. It was a big deal. And as he just said in Galatians 5, if you seek to be justified by any amount of works, circumcision, I'll add water, baptism, any work of the flesh, if you seek to add that to faith to be justified, you have divorced yourself from Christ. He will not save you because he's not going to share his glory with anyone. He did all the work for salvation. And to say, well, you know, Lord, yeah, you saved me by going to the cross, but I was water baptized or I was circumcised. Paul said, you don't understand how serious a breach of, of truth this is. And this is why he was so adamant for Paul, this was not an unessential issue. This was the heart and soul of the issue, which is salvation by grace through faith. And so salvation through circumcision was so embedded in their thinking, so ingrained in Jewish culture that Paul had no choice 
but to constantly come against it in his writings. Romans 4, verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only, the blessedness of eternal life, salvation, righteousness? Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? No, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And we've touched on this before. Let me say it again. Paul here seizes on, on a historical fact that most people would not, they would gloss right over it. But Paul seizes on it and says that Abraham was justified, declared righteous, saved, Genesis 15, verse 6. That was 14 years before God commanded him to be circumcised in Genesis 17, verse 24. So he was, he was justified long before he was circumcised. And that's Paul's point. Look, if the father of the nation of Israel could be justified while he was still uncircumcised, well, then the question arises, why can't other uncircumcised people be justified, like the Gentiles? But guys, it does beg the question. What was the point in God giving the Jewish people the right of circumcision? Well, we don't have to guess because in verse 11 he tells us. It was given as both a sign and a seal. Verse 11. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. Look, we all know this. Let me say it again because Paul brings it up. Circumcision was not the cause of Abraham's justification. It was merely an outward sign in his flesh, his body, that he had been justified by faith. Guys, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, just like water baptism is the sign of the new covenant through Christ, and a wedding ring is a sign of the marriage covenant. The symbol or the sign is not the reality. A wedding ring is not marriage. It signifies marriage. It points to marriage, right? A sign points to something, right? But it points to a reality other than itself. In other words, if I'm taking my family to the Grand Canyon for vacation, and we all of a sudden see a sign, Grand Canyon, 300 miles. I don't park the car, get out and say, we're here. <laughs> it's not as big as I thought, but here we are. No, a sign points to something, a reality other than itself. People want to make the sign the reality. They want to make water baptism salvation. The Jews wanted to make circumcision salvation. But in addition to being a sign, circumcision was also a seal. As Paul said, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he, Abraham, had while still uncircumcised. One author put it this way. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, a sign points to the existence of that which it signifies. A seal authenticates, confirms, certifies, or guarantees the genuineness of that which is signified. Circumcision confirmed to Abraham that he was regarded and treated by God as righteous through faith. Circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of Abraham's faith, a seal of the righteousness which he obtained on the basis of faith. Because Abraham was justified before he was circumcised, he can be the father of other uncircumcised people, that is, of believing Gentiles. They can be justified the same way he was, by faith. Well, Romans 11 again. 
He received the sign of circumcision, the seal, the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. When Paul says that Abraham is the father of believing Gentiles, that's what he's talking about. Obviously, he isn't saying that he is literally and physically the father of Gentile believers. It's simply Paul's way of saying that Gentile believers are the spiritual children of Abraham because his faith, in a sense, has given birth to their faith. Again, guys, Abraham didn't give birth to Jews and Gentiles as his physical children. That deals with the first birth through Adam, physical birth. But rather, his faith was used by God to give birth to unbelieving Jews and Gentiles who became his spiritual children by their faith, same faith he had, and the same promises God gave. And once they exercised that faith, they became spiritual children of Abraham by faith and members of the family of God. And this spoke of the second birth, the one that Jesus talked about in John 3, that to get into heaven, you have to be born physically and you have to be born again spiritually. It takes two births. But the bottom line is that Paul is saying unequivocally that salvation, listen, is not the result of sacramentalism. It's not the result of sacramentalism. Now again, in my Roman Catholic background, I was taught that baptism and communion, in other words, keeping the sacraments, equaled salvation. Equaled salvation. In fact, many churchgoers today are basing their salvation from hell on infant baptism, just as the Jews were trusting in circumcision. 1 Peter 3. I'll give you a couple of verses that deal with how water baptism is a wonderful sign of the new birth, but it's not the reality. Then I'll give you a couple that deal with circumcision. 1 Peter 3, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, oh, but not water baptism, which he describes as not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, we've made the point before. Let me just say it quickly again. The word baptism, baptizo in the Greek, means to immerse. Whenever you see it in the New Testament, read the context carefully. Who's doing the baptizing, and what are people being immersed or baptized into? We assume, we see baptism, people just assume water. And, and I think that's probably the majority of verses that deal with baptism, water baptism. Not all of them. I think when I did a study some time ago, I isolated every place in the New Testament where baptism was used. There's like seven or eight various you know, ways that it's, it's used, all right? Uh, but the basic word means to immerse. The, the question is immersed into what? Here Peter is saying, look, baptism now saves us, but not dipping a person in water and washing a little dirt off their body. But when a person exercises faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, takes them and in, invisibly baptizes them into the body of Christ. They're saved. That's what it means to be saved. You are placed in Christ. So again, beautiful symbol, but not the reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, there he's talking about water baptism. That's what the context says. But to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. 
I had a gentleman come up after Sunday service a couple weeks ago, and um, he was in conversation with somebody at work who said that water baptism was essential for salvation. And so he asked my opinion on it. And I said, well, uh, no, I don't believe that. Okay, thief on the cross wasn't baptized with water. He was saved. And I showed him this verse. I said, look, Paul was the quintessential evangelist. If water baptism was essential for salvation, he wouldn't have ever said, well, you know, I, I, I never baptize. You know, just, I just don't do it. No, he actually said, Christ didn't send me to baptize. Now, if baptism was, a, was essential for salvation, it would be part of the gospel. Christ has not sent me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. They're two separate things. Let's not confuse the sign or the symbol with the reality. I mean, they go together like a wedding ring on the finger of a married person, but the ring is not the reality. You can take it off, still be married. Uh, same is true with the water baptism. You can believe in Christ, never get water baptized, and you still go to heaven. Why do we do it then? Because Jesus told us to do it. And as he identified with sinners, the righteous, holy one of God, we identify, We want people to understand that we have a baptism at the pool or we want them to know why we're doing it. It's a, a sign that we're new creations in Christ now. Old things have been washed away and so on. And that's what we do. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. Give you a couple about circumcision. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And you can read the whole context yourself if you're writing these down. I'm just going to pull out the main verse or verses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God never intended circumcision to be taught as something that saved from sin and judgment. Again, it was a beautiful sign. What was, this, what was the reality? Well, you're my people. You belong to me now. And I want you to live a holy life. Uh, circumcision was the cutting away of something unclean, the foreskin. And God said, I'm, I want to use that as an illustration of how I want to circumcise your hearts and cut away all the uncleanness that you may walk with me consistently in holiness and purity because you're my people, right? Well, but it was just easier to go through the rite of circumcision than to live a holy life, right? I mean, well, we're, I don't observe Lent, but we're in Lent period for some people, okay? And of course, what precedes Lent? Fat Tuesday, which Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. So the idea was you get all your sinning done on Tuesday, and then what's Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. Now you're holy. <laughs> but... It's so much easier, isn't it, to go and get some ashes smeared in your forehead than it is to live a righteous life, which is what God wants. It's a lot easier just to dip somebody in water and say, okay, you're fine now, than to teach them, well, that doesn't mean anything. It's a symbol of, of a reality that will be yours when you receive Christ as your Savior and he washes you clean of your sins. And then we take you down dip you in water to symbolize that for people to see jeremiah 4 because years later after god told them circumcision was really all about the heart uh, deuteronomy 30 verse 6 
they really walked away from God, got into idolatry and morality big time, but they were circumcised, the guys. That's all we need. That's all we need, what they thought. Jeremiah 4, verse 4, the Lord says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What kind of a God do you think I am? That I'm so shallow-minded I'm appeased by our outward ritual? That was never my intent to begin with. It was always about the heart, but you've turned it into a, a, an outward physical ritual and that's all you need now. And God's saying, if you don't circumcise the foreskins of your heart, get your life right with me, walk in holiness, my judgment's going to come. All right, back to Romans. Let's look at verse 11 one more time. Romans 4, verse 11. Again, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness may be imputed to them also, to the Gentiles who are not circumcised. Verse 12, And the father of circumcision to those, Abraham now, is going to be the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Um, God's purpose was that Abraham would be the father of, uh, of a new nation, consisting of all who believe and thereby are justified by faith. This new nation would consist both of the uncircumcised Gentiles, who would exercise faith in Messiah, and the circumcised, the Jews. But listen, because the Jews believed that circumcision saved them, Paul directs most of his comments to them in this section, telling them that outward rituals like circumcision won't save them. Won't save them. They must walk in the footsteps of the faith that Abraham had in his heart if they want to be saved. Turn back to Romans 2. Guys, you're putting all your trust in circumcision? He's telling these Jewish readers. He said that is flat out wrong. Flat out wrong. You, you got the sign of circumcision on your body. Well, uh, Abraham had that. But what you're missing is the faith of Abraham in your heart. Romans 2 verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. Not in the letter, the letter of the law, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Yeah, religion was um, very popular, it is today among many people, especially clergy, because they get the praise of people. Oh, you're so holy, Bishop. You know, uh, back in Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees or the, or the priests. And religion is uh, very popular with some people because it allows them to boast how wonderful they are, how righteous they are by their works. Uh, but it also causes people to praise them and to revere them and so on. But Paul is saying, look, do you want praise from men or from God? Didn't Jesus say, you Pharisees, you make a colossal mistake in that you seek the praise of men, but you're not seeking the praise of God? You're doing what you do because people will admire you and, and praise you, 
But you don't care about what God really wants. You only care about what affects you and so on. One pastor had this to say. He said, obviously, then the rite of circumcision, which many Jews rely on for salvation, contributes in no way to one's status before God. It gives them no special standing before him because they must be declared righteous on the basis of faith in God. Just like the rite of water baptism doesn't save those living under the new covenant, it also is merely a sign of the new birth. Don't put your faith in a ritual, end quote. Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, guys, this whole section is a very important section to Paul's argument, so we need to understand what he's talking about. But this whole section revolves around the promise, the promise that God made to Abraham. It is the key to understanding the entire passage, okay? Let me say this. God actually gave one promise to Abraham that contained several different elements. The promise is listed in four places in Genesis. So let's look at them quickly. And again, I just pulled out the major verse. Um, I had originally um, the whole passage, but it would, it would take too long to get through all these. So I'll let you dig each of these out and look at the whole context. Uh, but I just pulled out the main thought, okay? Um, God gave Abraham one promise that contained four basic elements, all right? Genesis 12, verse 3. God said, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Promise number one, promise part A. Okay. Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6. He then brought him, God brought Abraham outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Part B. Genesis 17, starting with verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's part C. And finally, Genesis 22, starting with verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Look, one commentator breaks down the promise God gave to Abraham identifying each of its parts. He said, and I quote, The promise of Abraham was embedded, or embodied, I should say, in God's covenant with Abraham, in which the patriarch was told that his descendants would be heirs of the world. 
In analyzing God's promise to Abraham, four significant factors emerged. First, the promise involved a land in which Abraham would live, but that would not be possessed until some five centuries later when Joshua led the Israelites in their conquest of Canaan. Second, the promise also involved a people who would be so numerous that they could not be numbered like the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. Eventually, Abraham would become the father of many nations. Third, the promise involved a blessing. A blessing of the entire world through Abraham's descendants. The whole world will be blessed. And fourth, the promise would be fulfilled in the giving of a redeemer who would be a descendant of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed by the provision of salvation. The promise to Abraham was, in essence, a preaching to him of the gospel. We'll have more to say about that next week, okay? And he finishes, The promise that God gave to Abraham was that he would be the father of a great multitude. Hence, the name changed from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. This great multitude would be a new nation, the people of God. How would people be a part of this new nation? They'd have to be born into it the same way Abraham was. Not physically, but spiritually by faith, end quote. All right, Romans 4, verse 13 again. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul wants his Jewish readers to know that Abraham was justified by believing God's promise, not by keeping God's law. For the law itself wouldn't be given through Moses, listen, for another 430 years, which Paul tells us in Galatians 6, verse 17. I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 17. Now, you might be thinking, but does this promise God gave Abraham have any relevance to my life today? Because we, uh, we become very pragmatic, okay? Bottom line, Pastor, how does this affect me? Man, I hate that. Look. I can't give you the bottom line until I give you every other line. <laughs> i got to give you the context, and we got to talk about what the Bible is actually saying before we can apply it to our lives. But listen, Paul goes to great lengths to talk about Abraham and the promise God made to him because it does apply to us. How does that work? Turn to Galatians 3. This promise that God gave to Abraham also extended to his children, and we are his children by faith. So, yes, it absolutely applies to us, okay? Let's look at Galatians 3, starting with verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. The promise applies to us as well. Look at Galatians 3, verse 14. That the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Look at Galatians 3, 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that means dry baptism, not water this time. Uh, you exercise faith in Christ, believe in the resurrection. You're taken by the Holy Spirit and placed in the body of Christ, you're saved. We've put on Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, if you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. There it is. The promise God gave to Abraham, we become the heirs of because we're his children by faith. Guys, the promise that God gave to Abraham was a unilateral, unconditional promise or covenant that he received by faith. We've talked about this before. I'm not going to go back. You can look at Genesis 15. Remember the context. Verse 6, Abraham believed God was accounted for righteousness. Then he goes on to talk about this covenant. And God made a covenant with Abraham. Had him take some animals, kill them, cut them in two, lay the pieces on either side of the path. And then the idea was in those days, if two people want to enter into a covenant with each other, they both pass through those animal pieces. Bilateral covenant, each had terms to fulfill. If one person didn't fulfill their terms of the covenant, the whole covenant was rendered null and void. What happened? God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and God only, God himself only, in the form of a smoking oven and burning torch, the Shekinah, passed through those animal parts, signifying that this was not a bilateral, conditional covenant. It was a unconditional, unilateral covenant. A covenant that God made with himself. We had no terms to fulfill. God just made us a promise. You believe, you've got eternal life. That's it. You have nothing to do. There's no terms. Faith is not a work, by the way. Some people say, well, faith is a work. No, it isn't. Paul's going to show us very clearly in Romans 4, either say by your faith or by your works. Faith is not a work. All right, But the promise God gave to Abraham was given to him purely by God's grace. Grace, again, means getting something you don't deserve. Abraham didn't earn it. He didn't merit it. This is the same unconditional promise God made with us through Jesus Christ under the new covenant, which is also a unilateral, unconditional covenant. Look, God promised you put your faith in my son. I will save you. I will give you eternal life. I have a place reserved for you in heaven that will never fade away. Since I had no part in my salvation, attaining it, I have no part in my salvation to forfeit it. Now, again, we don't advocate living a, a sinful life because I'm saved by grace. Look, if you're really saved by grace and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, guess what? You're not going to want to sin more. You're going to want to sin less. But this idea that I can accept Christ and somehow lose my salvation baffles me. Because if you didn't do anything to earn it, how can you do anything to lose it? It was a unilateral covenant that God made with himself to give us eternal life, which by its definition is life for eternity, the moment we accepted Jesus as our Savior. We believed in God's promise. Today, guys, God justifies the ungodly, as he did all the way back in Abraham's day. He justifies the ungodly because those who believe in his gracious promise to give them eternal life if they believe in his son, not because they obey his law, but as we've already said, the law was not given to make us righteous, but to show us our sin. Hopefully that people will see that, look, I need another way. I can't, I can't get to heaven by this way, sinless perfection. No way. I, I need another way. And Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. All right, we know that. The expression, heir of the world, with regard to Abraham, means he would be the father of believing Gentiles as well as Jews, that he would be the father of many nations, not just 
the Jewish nation. Guys, in the fullest sense of, in the fullest sense, the promise that God gave to Abraham found its fulfillment in one particular seed, Messiah. And wouldn't reach its full fulfillment as a promise until Messiah came back to the earth to establish his kingdom and then reigns over the earth in perfect justice, King of kings, Lord of lords. That's when we're going to get all the fulfillment of all the promise, the fourfold promise that God made with Abraham. Yes, it affects us in this life. Ultimately, though, it's going to affect us in the kingdom. Kingdom. We're going to have a land, right? We're going to have a multitude of people. I mean, everything God promised Abraham, which uh, had a short-term partial fulfillment on earth, is going to have a long-term ultimate fulfillment when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom. The millennial kingdom will be the absolute fulfillment of the promise God gave to Abraham, which we are the recipients of because we're spiritual kids, okay? All right, let's end there because there's too much uh, to go on. I don't want to rush through this. So we'll, God willing, we'll pick it up next week as we continue working our way through chapter 4, which, you know, just I love the illustrations that Paul gives using Abraham um, to prove his point that, look, this is, was not a righteous guy when he first exercised faith. He was an ungodly pagan. And yet God still saved him because he exercised faith in, well, ultimately God's Messiah, God's promise. All right, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is awesome. Your word is incredible. It's living and powerful. And we ask, Lord, that you'll continue to bless these studies in your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that you will give grace that we could really, I mean, there's, it's so deep, Lord, so rich. Just give us the grace to understand enough of it where we can benefit from these truths. We could spend a lifetime digging out the precious gems of this book. Uh, but Lord, right now, in just a very rudimentary way, give us the grace to understand uh, the basics of what you're saying to us. Give us the grace to live these things out in the power of the Spirit in our daily lives. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.